0: Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair.
1: And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. In the second half of today's show, we'll hear from returning guest Donald Altman. He's a practicing psychotherapist and former Buddhist monk. And today we'll explore how love, kindness and compassion help overcome fear and negativity. Donald Altman's new book is Reflect, Awaken to the Wisdom of Here and Now. First, While many authors write about wilderness, wild spirits and living wild, few actually live it. In Rough Beauty, writer, award-winning poet and mountain woman Karen Avinan chronicle 40 seasons of mountain living. Karen's work has appeared in the New York Times as well as numerous literary journals. She has an MA in poetry and a PhD in fiction writing. And she's a former artist in residence for the state of Colorado She's won two Academy of American Poets Awards and joins us today with her new memoir, which actually is her first book. It's called Rough Beauty, 40 Seasons of Mountain Living. Karen Ovenland, welcome.
2: Well, well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Uh,
1: Yeah, it's not very often you hear about women uh, writing these kind of stories, living in the wild, and you say that's part of the reason... Uh, that you wrote this book. And you're always amazed when people, you're talking with people, um, they say to you, why? Why would you want to live up on a mountain alone? Um, So talk to us a little bit about why you decided to write the book.
2: Well, as you say, I mean, I got a lot of questions. People would say, why are you living there alone? alone? Aren't you afraid? Aren't you lonely? And, you know, that's a question that no one really asks the man who lives by himself. And so I thought, well, I'm going to answer this question, and the answer for me was really um, I kind of unwittingly undertook my own heroic journey. Um, I two factors really about living in the mountains for me um, that were key. The first thing is that I had a a transient childhood. My father was in the Air Force, and we moved around. And I remember as a kid really just wanting to be from someplace to be rooted into into landscape. Um, We were kind of kicked around by my dad's career, and and my family is second-generation immigrants, so you know, we came to America and forgot you know, the homeland. And, and so I, I think I was looking for an identity, and that identity to be rooted in place. And um, I adopted that kind of transient lifestyle uh, when I grew up, and I had a million different jobs as I tried to be a writer. Um, and, then, and then the other thing, the bigger thing for me, is that I really felt like I was born into a society that didn't really fit me, um, because I, you know, I I joke in the book that I have a kind of a cowgirl ethos, and I think that's my independence. But I was told from very early on, because I was a girl, I was meant to be a supporting role in, in somebody's life. I was meant to be a wife or Miss America. Um, and these are things that didn't appeal to me, really. Uh, so I kind of cultivated my personality in opposition. Um, I'm opinionated, I'm strong, I'm resilient. And I thought, well... I'm going to go find some place that fits me. And it turns out, you know, um, the mountains are full of people like me who are outliers, who don't feel like they fit into society for whatever reason. Um, So I was looking for a place to belong and a place to be myself. And the mountains were my first love. I've got the love of the mountains from my father. And so it was kind of a natural fit for me to kind of just move away from family and then society and then move up into the mountains. And, And actually, I moved away initially, like I was running away, but I, in the end, learned kind of the art of embrace and learned to kind of stay put and embrace landscape.
1: Right. So you say that you were kicked around by your dad's career. Uh, He was in the military, so you got to move a lot. You never really created a great, a really strong connection with people because you knew you would be moving off soon. But you were also kicked around by your dad in other ways. You write about your family appearing you know very normal and very happy on the outside, but inside it was anything but and and you know some of the things I read that your father did and and particularly things he said were really quite cruel so tell us how much that impacted you growing up
2: Well, I think what it did is it made me from a very young age um my dad is a has a very larger than life personality um and uh you know, he's a nice guy on the outside, um, but with his family, not so nice. And, um, and so I think for me, uh, it made me uh, develop this kind of armor. Um, um, and, it, and it also developed this kind of thing where I just walked away. I just, I decided this isn't for me and I'm going to go as far away from it as possible. And I'm going to go as far away from people as possible. So I don't think I developed the kind of trust that you should develop, you know, growing up in your family for other people and learn about, I didn't learn about love until really I got my dog Elvis. uh, And then I kind of understood what unconditional love was. So Mm -hmm. it was an unstable and unpredictable home. And so I think um, as a result, I, um, I became the kind of person who always likes to be in charge (laughs) and in control of the situation, and I'm hypersensitive to the moods of others. So, you know, just I think anybody who's had that kind of trauma understands the things that you do to cope with it.
1: Right. So tell us about Elvis, because you write in the book that uh, you said it's true, uh, we don't pick our dogs, they pick us.
2: I'm sorry, say that again?
1: Tell us about your dog, Elvis, because you write in the book uh, that that saying, you know, they say, uh, we don't pick our dogs they pick us and you say that is entirely true because elvis chose you
2: yeah he was um you know elvis was really kind of like a, a human in a fur coat uh, and um i my relationship with him as i say really taught me about love and it taught me about um it was a you know the kind of relationship that you have with a dog one on one is um is amazing and spectacular and um and it and it offers um It just offers a lot. It offers so many things in terms of um, it. It showed me what love was like, is what I'm saying. And um, I I just think uh, I I learned how to trust with him. And so I have this story in the book where I have to. He's a husky, so he wants to run away from me all the time. And what I have to do (laughs) is get him to come back. And and so I trained him by uh, attaching a leash to my waist and then attaching it to him. And in the morning. When I got up and walked, he got up and walked. And when I sat down, he had to sit down. So he learned that we were a pack, that we should go everywhere together. And that kept him from running away. Um, and it kept him safe because when he ran away, you know, he would get in trouble uh, with people and cars and ranchers and all kinds of stuff and wildlife. But it also, that kind of leash became a metaphor for our relationship because he really tethered me to the world. And in a way that made me embrace the world. Um, after my house burned down, uh, I the one I did have a thought a few months afterwards. Oh, why bother rebuilding? And the thing that kept me here <laughs> in this life was the dog. Who would take care of such a dog? He was such a pain in the butt. Um, <laughs> so I think his relationship, that relationship, saved my life.
1: Right. Right. So you just mentioned the fire. So let's talk about that, because you had you were delivering mail and your um, cast iron stove, I think, uh, had a lot to answer for. It left you with very, very well, practically nothing. Right.
2: Right. Right. I had just finished. I kind of took the most circuitous route to the present moment, which was I was thirty nine. I just finished my PhD. I decided for sure I'm going to be a writer. I, uh, I have student loan debt. I have four jobs so that I can kind of make this part-time, you know, I have jobs that are flexible so I can keep writing, and I settle in the mountains. And I had been living around the town of Jamestown, but I found a cabin on an acre of land. And, not, and I'm, nine months after I moved in, it burned to the ground, and I lost all of my writing, most of my writing, except for the two uh, my dissertation and my thesis, which were filed at the university, but all the rest of my writing, my journals, and my books, which was a huge loss for me. And I had to start over, and four months later I turned 40.
3: Right. <laughs> um,
2: so, I mean, even though
1: you were living in the mountains there, you had some stuff that was very precious to you. Yes,
2: I, you know, I, it's true. I mean, I, I'm i not, um, I have, <laughs> yeah, I, I used to work as a, um, a cookbook buyer at a gourmet retail store and so i am a cook and so i had you know 300 cookbooks and i had beautiful cookware and kate i used to cater when i was in college so i had catering things so I, I have a love of beauty um um in it, all its forms. so i do like a nicely set table so i had managed to kind of collect these really nice things and it all went away um but in the end those are the things that you really mm-hmm. miss really it. i mean it, they're I- just and I say in the book, I knew I wasn't my things. It was just the effort that it had taken to kind of get to a certain point in my life just kind of went up in smoke.
1: Right. So I want to ask you this, Karen, because we hear all the time on the news about people who've lost homes through floods or tornadoes and fires. And they all say, well, you know, thank goodness no one was hurt. But after that, I'm sure there must be some kind of shock that sets in. And uh, how did you deal with that?
2: Um, it kind of came in stages and waves. The shock, at first, I mean, the first manifestation of the shock is that I felt incredibly liberated.
1: You oh, know? you did?
2: Yeah, I felt like I was, I didn't have anything to take care of or clean. I didn't have to pay a rent check. I was, uh, you know, I had nothing. Um, and there was a sense for just a few weeks of like, wow, I can start all over again. And then after that, it was, oh i have to start all over again
1: <laughs> right after the adrenaline sci- kind of
2: right so <laughs> i'm a you know put your shoulder to the rock kind of gal and that's what i did i mean i am great when you give me a series of tasks and i think that determination that i have helps me get through it and you know the grief came, you know, in, in different ways. At, at that year after the fire, I had I experienced several deaths in my life, which kind of poked me to kind of grieve this death of my, you know, my old life. Um, but in the end, uh, I think, I mean, I, was, I got depressed, and I, I did all kinds. I retreated even further into landscape, so this is the cabin that I moved to, into that I wrote about. But pretty soon um, I realized that I slowed down enough to start kind of keeping taking stock of my life. I was writing about it. I was writing about how I felt. I was writing about what I saw every day. And, and then pretty soon I was on the road to recovery. I was journeying back through. So I think you have to, I busied myself with tasks, and that's how I got through it.
1: Right, right. Well, the book is described as a gorgeous meditation on solitude and connection. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that solitude and what it meant to you when we come back. We're going to take a very quick break. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. My guest is Karen Arvindan, and her new book is called Rough Beauty, 40 Seasons of Mountain Living. We'll be right back.
0: Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation... It's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. filling in for Smokey, cause after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless. Dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees. Whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting edge health and wellness professionals, award winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150.
3: Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Live well and live strong. Reach her great audience and advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net.
4: Get inspired every hour right here
0: on Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Karen Ovinen. She is the author of Rough Beauty, 40 Seasons of Mountain Living, and this is a memoir. I was saying to Karen during the break of the more than 1,000, it's more than 1,200 now, authors that I've interviewed, I believe she's the first one I've talked with who actually has a PhD in fiction writing, so tell us what you did on that.
2: I I kept trying to figure out a way to make it as a writer in the world, and so I got my master's in poetry, and uh, I realized I didn't couldn't really get a good teaching job that way, um, and so I went back and got my PhD. And when I was doing my po- my uh, masters in poetry, people said, "Oh, we love your stories." So I got my PhD in fiction writing, and then I realized, "Oh, I'm going to have to move to get a job," and <laughs> I didn't really want to leave Colorado. I mean, I live in the most beautiful place in the world, and <laughs> it fits me. And so, uh, so I teach at the University of Colorado now, but I. Um, so and then I ended up writing a memoir. So uh, go figure. I just I, and certainly the fiction writing and the poetry both are in this book, Rough Beauty. They you know, the kind of of course, the language is poetry and then the kind of fictive techniques you do to right. make a story.
1: Right. Right. So And it's doing very well. It's it's uh, this is the paperback version just came out Um so, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, so, first of all, why the Rockies? Because there are many beautiful, isolated places, but you you said you love Colorado. So, what is it about the Rockies in particular?
2: I think it's just, um, I, you know, it's the kind of landscape of my birth. I mean, so I'm a Westerner by nature. My dad was, uh, we, we were moved larger, largely in the West um, with his Air Force career, and my family. Uh came to Colorado in 1973 and then uh, left for a few years. My, my dad was stationed in Hawaii. Then my parents got divorced, and I came back here with my mother and my little sister to Colorado and then went to college in Boulder. Um, and so I think uh, that, you know, I, I've never known anything but the arid west. I, I did have spent an early part of my childhood in California, which even California is a little too humid for my sensibility. Uh, I love the mountains. I love the fact that in the Rockies you can stand in a place and think, hmm, I wonder if anyone else has ever stood here before. There are places that feel wild. I have a house now that's on an acre and a half of land, uh, and it's wooded. And and as a matter of fact, last night we um, had, uh, I'm calling it the Night of the Grizzlies, even though they were uh, black bears, (laughs) we had... had, Five bears visit the house. Uh, so, and one of them was a little mom, a mama, and a baby. Anyway, so um, I like the sense of wildness here, and I like the arid landscape. I I like dry air. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just
1: it just seems like it fits me. Right. Right. And so let's talk about when you first went there and you you experienced for the first time this deep solitude um, in the winter and what that was like for you.
2: You know, the solitude of winter is kind of a a double-edged sword. It's really, um, there would be days when I just wouldn't speak to anyone but my dog. The sound of my voice would startle me uh, because in wintertime, it's, so quiet. There's no birds. There are no cars there. And when it snows, the snow tamps down the s- sound of everything. And uh, it is—it's an invitation to sit still in your life. And so those days, because my days were ordered by weather, uh, you know, I, what I had to do was keep the house warm. So I'm feeding the wood stove. I'm—if I'm at home, I'm reading. I'm writing. I'm grading papers, or in my leisure, I'm watching movies, and I've got the window shades pulled down. To keep, if it's really cold outside, to kind of keep. Um, I had uh, when I moved into the cabin. It had single pane windows, which was quite quite cold in the winter time, uh, and the floors. Um, you could feel the cold radiating off the floors. Um, so it, it's lonely, sure, it's lonely, um, but it's also um, fantastically. A whole world of silence opens up, and in that, that's a great thing for a writer.
1: Yes, yeah, because we, well, we're doing a a segment on mindfulness next, um, and we talk about this a lot today. And corporations talk about it a lot, but um, it's one thing doing it in a busy city, and it's a whole other thing doing it up on you know what, eighty-five hundred foot up on a mountain.
2: Right, right. There's a sense. I mean, you know, if it's a deep snow, I'm not going anywhere. Um, I'm (laughs) not. You have to stay put. You can't just run out. For an afternoon coffee or the movies, right? Um, but I developed a relationship with, you know, loneliness and and really, uh, there's a beautiful quote by uh, in Natalie Goldberg's book, uh, Writing Down the Bones. She talks about Category Roshi says anything you do very deeply is lonely, and I suddenly realized that loneliness is not a, a terrible thing. Um, it means really, it's a word that describes what it means to kind of live profoundly. And that's the kind of life I was embracing by myself on the mountains. Right. And so tell us about
1: some of the challenges when, I'm sure there were moments, uh, you know, even if fleeting, where you thought, what the heck am I doing?
2: (laughs) Uh, You know, there. so in the wintertime, my cabin was made of wood, literally wood two by fours, little blocks. Of wood, and it looked, so it looked like a brick cabinet, except for the bricks were wood, and everywhere those, and it was a fishing cabin, so it had been purchased and then kind of insulated after the fact, which and it was up on rock pylons, so there was no, you know, re, there was not a founda- there was a lot of not a foundation, and so the insulate there was insulation stuck underneath the cabin, so that made it really super cold. But in the winter time, when the wind in January would blow, and it was about you know 10 degrees below zero. Um, this icy wind would carry crystals of, of snow, and they would come through the cracks <laughs> in the cabin walls. And so I'd have to put I put uh, posters and mirrors and all kinds of things uh, over the walls to keep the um, snow from going um, blowing in. I wow. and I discovered this, of course, one night when it woke me up at about two o'clock in the morning, and <laughs> I've got snow blowing in on my face. Um, so it, you know, and then I would say probably critters. Uh, you know, there was no way to keep mice out of that cabin and it was a constant battle to keep them away from my food. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't mind them so much until, you know, I would find mouse, mouse droppings in places I really didn't want it. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd hear them rattling Mm. in my dish rack at night and stuff like that.
1: Right. And so as you started to rebuild your life, Karen, um, I mean, did you have flashbacks to this other house burning down and um, you know, did you have setbacks around that? Oh, and that?
2: it's thundering here.
1: <laughs> oh, goodness.
2: <laughs> oh, absolutely. Welcome, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a thunderstorm. Absolutely, I had uh, flashbacks. Uh, and it, for a long while. So, you know, I, I was living in the mountains, and um, uh, every time there was it, wildfire season, uh, wildfire season was really... Um, tough because, uh, and a few times, the cabin was threatened by wildfire. So when that happened, I would start having uh, fire uh, nightmares. And, you know, fire's coming and I can't get out, or Elvis, my dog, was at the cabin. Elvis was at the cabin and I couldn't get to him. And then, that hasn't gone away, actually. Um, At the end of the book, I mentioned that Jamestown, which was the mountain town below me, experienced a experienced a flood and when that flood happened I started having the same kind of wildfire dreams again uh, and towns that were destroyed and people losing things and so it so it yeah it stuck with me
1: Mm. well I'm jealous you're having a thunderstorm right now because they keep telling us we're going to have one and it never materializes
2: (laughs) we have had non-stop rain up here um, it's been a very late cool spring here right and so
1: what, tell us how you describe the book in your own words, because it's about a period of time and a lot of reflection. How do you describe it to
4: people?
2: I, I describe it as, um, you know, I, other than the fact that this 10 years of living alone in, uh in a remote place, it's about the alchemy of wild places. It's about the transformational power of land. It's about what happens when you live deeply with landscapes. And it, so for me, it was this journey of kind of, you know, moving away from everything I thought that I didn't need or didn't want and actually finding myself learning how to embrace the world. And so it's interesting, in isolation, I learned how to kind of put my arms around things.
1: Mm. I, it's very different to what you're doing, but I, I actually like to camp alone sometimes. And that, um, that, itself is like a very mini experience (laughs) you get time to really think and just be yourself you know
2: I think it's really important and I I think it's really important particularly for women I mean one of the things I say about this book is that it's a heroic journey for women and I hope it's inspiring for other women to say yeah I can I can do that too
1: right right so how, apart from the obvious that you got away from your family, um, how do you think it's changed you as, as a human being?
2: Well, living, you mean living wild? Yes. I think, you know, it actually taught me that that really no one does it alone. I mean, I the first thing that happens after my house burns down is that I have nothing and I have no way to start over again. I don't have insurance. I don't have any money and uh, the town of Jamestown, which is where I was working there at the Mercantile Cafe, I was working as a cook there, and so I knew the town, and I kind of kept my distance. Um, the first thing that happens is the town of Jamestown throws me a benefit, and they, and people come out of the woodwork to help me. Somebody um, offered me a place to stay rent-free for four months until I got on my feet. The town raised money. They donated clothes. They donated items. And I was really overwhelmed by the generosity of people that I didn't know, in some cases, people that I didn't like in other cases. And it really kind of taught me the real meaning of community is, is uh, you know, not a bunch of people who are like-minded. It is a collection of people with all kinds of experiences and opinions and, and opinions about each other who have some kind of commonality. They're in a relationship. Our relationship was this mountain living thing. And th- you can not like someone; you can hate them. But when they need help, you drop everything and you go help them. Mm. And that was um, that was I'd never experienced that, and that was life changing for me. Yeah. And I realized that community is so so important, even though I live even though I live remotely still.
1: Right, right. Well, I've heard you say we need more narratives about women who go it alone in the wild, whether it's on the trail or, or in how they live their lives. But eventually you did find love out there in the wilderness. Tell, tell us how that came about.
2: Well, you know, I it came about because, I, you know, because I had this dog I fell in love with for 15 and a half years, and he was my ambassador to really this opening is Elvis, my heart. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also... Um, so after Elvis died, I met uh, Greg, who is my... Actually, we just eloped uh, May 1st, so we're still together. We were together at the end of the book. And, uh, and uh, I, you know, it, it was, I think, the process of softening that happened uh, for me after the fire. I realized that my life needed to change, and, you know, um, I had to start over again. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start over differently. And... The process of living inside landscape for all those years, being quiet, being alone, experiencing solitude, self reflecting, the experience of Elvis, I think they all led to being able to, for the first time in my life, share my life with someone else, another person.
1: Mm-hmm. And which, he's an artist, right? I checked out his websites and beautifully. Yeah, he's an, an artist and he did
2: the watercolor illustrations for the book. Yeah. So I'm, which are, uh, I was quite pleased with those.
1: Right, right. I I have always uh, said, uh, as a writer myself, that I <laughs> it would be very difficult to uh, be with another writer, but an artist I could handle, or a musician, <laughs> whatever.
2: Yeah, we um we have a, You know, we have our, we have to balance each other's creativity. So <laughs> yeah. he has a studio. We're going to build a writing. Uh, we're calling it a shack out on our land for me we're a place where i can go to write and we both i think we both understand each other's need for solitude uh while we're working and also the that how important creativity is for both of us i think we also understand that
1: right well listeners can find out much more about karen avinen and her work at karenavinan.com. uh the book rough beauty 40 seasons of mountain living a final quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with karen
2: I just want to say, I just want to give a shout-out for Wild Places, which is something we should all be thinking about right now. And, you know, the alchemy of Wild Places is that they really work on us if we let them. Ed Abbey said there's something about the desert, you know, kind of uh, mysteriously. But uh, Wild Places will work on us gradually and slowly. And so if we spend time in these places, and your Wild Place can be a park or wherever it is. It doesn't have to be on top of a mountain. But I think they work on us gradually and inevitably, and And I think they make us more human.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for being with us. I enjoyed reading your story and and hearing, uh, chatting with you today. So I appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much. A pleasure.
1: And again, the book, Rough Beauty, Karen Avinen, my guest. And you can find out more about her at her website, com. We will be right back with Donald Altman. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair.
0: Let's see if I... I guess that... ah, This just isn't working.
3: Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters then disappeared down a rabbit hole or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicky partners with people just like you, at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicky today. Email Vicky at vickystclair.com or call 1-800-495- 7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiSt.Claire.com. Oh, yeah, that could
0: work. Hi, everyone. Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that after 75 years, <coughs> Smokey's only said,
4: Only you can prevent wildfires.
0: But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when it's dry or windy. Be careful burning yard waste, because wildfires can even start in your neck of the woods. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.
1: This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Academy of Canine Behavior in Bothell, we cover the world of animals. This week, June 23rd, it's another Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me, and I'll finish up with all the information I didn't get a chance to share last week. As an animal behavior therapist and trainer, I can help you understand your animal friends and solve any problems you're having, so plan to give me a call on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative. Talk, AM 1150.
0: Did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer. Know who you're boating with. Wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket and don't drink in boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Going
4: our own way every day. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And I'm very pleased to welcome back in this segment Donald Altman. He's a psychotherapist and former Buddhist monk. Uh, he's been featured in the Mindfulness movie and profiled in the Living Spiritual Teachers Project. Uh, he's written over 15 books that teach how to incorporate mindfulness into daily life. His award-winning books include The Mindfulness Toolbox, Clearing Emotional Clutter, That's what we talked about last time he was here. And um, that was named one of the best spiritual books of 2016. And uh, his other award-winning book is The Mindfulness Code, Um, again named one of the best spiritual books. So he's served for many years in the community as uh, past vice president of the Center for Mindful Eating. And uh, very pleased to have him back today with his new book. It has just come out hot off the press here. It's called Reflect. Awaken to the Wisdom of the Here and Now. Donald Altman, welcome.
4: Oh, well, well hi, Vicky. It's wonderful to be on your show again.
1: Yeah, and it's great to have you back here. And, um, you know, we I said to my previous guest that, you know, we talk a lot about mindfulness. There's a lot written about mindfulness. Even corporations like Google are incorporating it into their training and their workshops with their employees. Um but it's hard to believe when you're driving up the <laughs> freeway or you're in the shopping mall and everyone's glued to their phone
4: <laughs> so
1: what are you finding are you finding we're losing it or
4: <laughs> well what i'm finding is i think we're under greater amounts of stress than ever before and that's and i and I, and that's how i wrote this book I, i've spent Uh, years in practicing meditation and and studying how to teach it to people and what I really felt was that we needed a a mindfulness for the 21st century for the kind of fast-paced world where we have where we're distracted where we're busy all the time but something that was simple and accessible but that could be transformative and just used throughout the day be integrated into our day and, and And I think that's what, to me, is so important. And it brings us back to the original meaning of mindfulness that I sometimes think gets gets watered down or gets lost. And that's a word from Sanskrit called sati. And it means, uh, really, the original meaning was self-recollection, self-remembrance. So in other words, regaining the fragmented parts of ourselves, finding wholeness. And I think it's very beautiful to think that we can regain that.
1: Right, right your new book uh, reflects follows the advice shared by the Buddha on his deathbed you say when asked how his teachings should be taught and carried forward so tell us what you mean by that
4: yeah basically the Buddha said be a lamp unto yourself <laughs> in other words uh, you know his advisors came to him as he was dying and wanted to say well how should we bring your teachings to people and you know they were they wanted to you know, codify it and create a whole uh, learning system around it, and the Buddha just said, "Try it and and see what happens <laughs> for yourself." And that's where I think the power of this is, where the power of mindfulness is. It's not having to find some uh, guru. I, I think we there's another principle that I that I've found is useful. It's called the Upa Guru, which is the light bringer within. Is how you would translate it. And so we're all our own light bringer. I think that reflect is just a way to help you shine some light, maybe in the places you hadn't looked at, to help you um, see things in a fresh perspective, to broaden things out, and that we, we learn ourselves, even as a psychotherapist, when I've had clients come in to me and, and they would sometimes say, oh, tell me what to do. <laughs> right. And, and I, you know, if I told them what to do, it wouldn't really have any used for them because it didn't come from within themselves and it might not stick. Right. Um, so I think this is a very important path. And mindfulness in general is about how do we awaken to whatever's happening in our life. And I, and I think that um, even with stress, for example, we need to think about how, how can I not just deal with the stress and become a little mindfulness clone, right? But how can we create a more compassionate environment, how can we work with others to change the stress that's around us and I think and that's where um, you know the mindfulness that we co-create with one another is so important
1: right um, you write in the introduction to the book that Saint Benedict believed there was no meaningless kitchen work what what does that mean Donald?
4: Yeah that's a great little uh, um, that you know that comes from the sixth century, monk, St. Benedict, and he wrote a wonderful little book. You'll, you can find it around, and it's The Rules of St. Benedict, and it's a very tiny little book, but it uh, has some wonderful common sense in there about how people can get along in communities. And one of the things he says in that book is that monks shall regard all utensils of the kitchen as sacred vessels of the altar. So looking at even that most ordinary thing and seeing it as something very special, in fact, there's been some interest, and, and I talk about the in-between moment in uh, the Reflect book. How can you find that in-between moment? You know, we can get focused on the outcome, on getting from A to B to Z or whatever, right? And we miss this moment. And, and actually, there was some research done, Vicki, that showed that people would underestimate the value of writing down and and. Uh, then reflecting on the ordinary moment in the future, they actually found ordinary moments more interesting than um, a quote extraordinary moment of a date they had, a romantic date they had had. Right. <laughs> so I think we kind kind of underestimate, it, and we wire the brain up through focusing on those ordinary moments more, because right. we can have one negative thing happen, and that can kind of almost uh, be like a filter that doesn't let us see the good things. We can focus on the negative things. We need to train the brain to look for the ordinary and good things, and that, that's a practice. that takes time.
1: Mm. One of the reflections you have in the book, uh, just since you brought it up, I'll, I'll bring that forward now, but um, you, you talked about ordinary moments punctuating the bigger journey, and you, you describe goals that way.
4: Right, right. That, In other words, instead of um, uh, getting fixated on the goal, Um, uh, which is really like you can think of when you're typing out a sentence and the punctuation points at the end of that sentence, right? But with the punctuation point, the period at the end of the sentence really is just one more, one character. Mm -hmm. And to be present with all the things that are happening on the journey, not just to get to that punctuation, not just to get to that period at the end of the sentence, that you need the entire sentence to create that story, Right. And so it's just, uh, yeah, it's kind of a metaphor for how can we um, appreciate each ordinary moment. And it's, it's easy to get caught up and lost in thought, isn't it?
1: It's very easy. I love that you write, if your goal-oriented perfectionist is pushing you, simply smile back. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, and, that, yeah and, and there are a number of reflections in here about observing the nature of our mind and becoming friends with it, really. Mm -hmm. We need to become friends with it. We need to become friends with our emotions. Even those unpleasant emotions, they may have a message for us, and and I have a reflection around that, which is um, invite your unwanted emotions in for a cup of tea. (laughs) And if you invite them in for a cup of tea, instead of calling the mental police and putting them in a paddy wagon, you may (laughs) learn, (laughs) you may find something very valuable, and that is a way, actually, that we... Um, can get to know our emotions better, and, and there's research that shows that we observe our emotions uh, in this kind of way, that we're less reactive, so we can respond more, we can learn from our emotions. And, and so I think it's a, uh, it's a beautiful way to um, bring in uh, even those unpleasant emotions.
1: Right, right. Well I, well, I don't want to interrupt you in my next question, so we're going to take a quick break now. We'll be right back. My guest is Donald Altman. His book, Reflect, Awaken to the Wisdom of the Here and Now. Please stay with us.
4: Hey, hon, what
1: you
0: doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair airs live every Monday at noon and now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6am every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting edge health and wellness professionals, award winning journalists filmmakers, explorers and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6am right here on Alternative Talk 1150.
3: Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at ConversationsLive.net.
0: Alternative Talk 1150.
4: It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. My guest in this segment is Donald Altman, psychotherapist and former Buddhist monk. And I know he does extensive mindfulness training around the world. His new book is called Reflect, Awaken to the Wisdom of the Here and Now. And um, I have to say, I love this book, Donald. Um, You say you designed Reflect with 108 short readings. um, And, you know, many books have, most books, I should say, have a beginning, middle and end. But you like to think of this book as a spiral journey with no beginning and no end, right?
4: Yeah, I, I think that, um, and thank you for mentioning that because I really feel that's important that when I think of a spiral, it's almost a spiral that is a staircase spiral that's moving upward and we're evolving and we're growing. And I think that as um, the human race is, is growing and we're progressing, we're still learning. And we don't need to be harsh on others, but we need to find kindness and uh, and compassion. And I think that's part of this journey We live in a time that can be very divisive in a lot of different ways, and how can we begin to understand uh, suffering in the world? And I think that through understanding of suffering, understanding even the suffering that we have in our own minds is very important to recognize. We see that no one is immune to that, and from that place we can grow compassion. And isn't that really a beautiful thing? The word compassion, if you break it down, means to be with suffering. And in my workshops, actually, I have people sit uh, with a compassionate gaze. I want, a, I want a, a compassionate gaze rather with one another. I want to grow that compassion container. And uh, it, it, it's beautiful when people, after this some of the exercises and how we work with that, reflect with that, that some will say, well, I, was, I felt like I was looking in a mirror mm. as they were looking in someone else's eyes. So I think the hope uh, of that spiral journey is it keeps moving us
1: uh, forward, right, right. That's interesting. I had a, a great yoga teacher when I lived in San Diego, and he would not begin class until he had made eye contact with everyone and so you know mm. extended eye contact. I, to be honest, I found it very uncomfortable when I first joined his class, but but I see you know as the weeks went on, I understood why he did that. It created that connection. Um, one thing I want to talk about, because we hear a lot about meditation, we've talked about meditation a lot on the show, um, you say it's not the amount of time spent meditating, but knowing how to access the brain circuitry that lets you quickly transform and, and alter it. And, um, you know, we hear a lot of people say, oh, I, my mind's too busy, but, you know, I, I just don't have time. But isn't it just that they haven't trained their mind to get there yet?
4: Right, and so what I try to do, because I I have sat in meditation for um, years and done that work, was, and I've also began to understand brain science and how the part of the brain that's right behind the eyebrow ridge needs to be exercised, and how to exercise that. That's the most human part of the brain, and it's really the reflect part of the brain. I call it the reflect module, and it's how we connect with others. It's how we also look inward, and and by exercising it. So if you're always having your attention grabbed by something outside of you, and if you're not making that eye that face-to-face contact, that's actually one way that this reflect module wires up. Now computers are really interesting. We all use them. I use them. But you also need to have a balance where you also connect with others face-to-face and and do these reflect exercises because if if you're feeling uh stressed, distracted, disconnected, or burned out, the chances are that you are not uh, giving your brain a chance to rest. And one way it rests is to really engage with something very strongly. And nature can do that. I heard you in that last uh, segment, you were talking about the wild places. And uh, uh, probably one of the great wild places is our own mind. (laughs) So we need to uh, train that. And nature can actually help engage the brain in that way so i think um what i tried to develop here is a way of giving having pointed sometimes provocative sometimes humorous ways of helping people break out of old patterns and see things in a fresh way and when you're sitting in meditation that may or may not happen or may take a very very long time Mm -hmm. but i've designed ways to do this here that uh that that I've really uh, distilled a lot of the work that I've done for years into this uh, one book and into these readings.
1: Right. Earlier, you talked about compassion, about kindness, about love. How does that help us overcome fear and negativity?
4: Uh, Well, yeah, compassion and uh, loving kindness really do overcome fear. And we can get caught in the fear channel very, very easily. And, um, you know, you may have heard people say, you know, um, hatred does not overcome uh, hate. Only love right. can overcome hatred. And I really believe it's true because yeah, I do too. Uh, it, it, it changes um, how you respond and react to that hate. And it may even help that other person uh, not have to react angrily. You know, how can we, uh, And it's and I'm not saying it's not challenging. Of course it is, but we need to know that uh, that loving kindness actually calms down our um, our entire nervous system, <laughs> and that is very very powerful. It Allows you to react to to um, r- respond in a different way to whatever's happening around you. Right. And so this is a skill, a very important skill.
1: It is a skill, and, and it does become a habit, I think. You know, we can either drive up the freeway screaming at everyone or drive up the freeway mm-hmm. with a, a whole different attitude. Um,
4: yeah, one it's of, a, ref, it, it's a habit of reflection, yes. what I think of it, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so, um, you know, you talked earlier about um, it's a very divisive world. I mean, it, there are very cruel things happening. You jump on sh- social media and I cannot believe that I'm reading half the stuff I read on social media. Um, but you say everyone deserves dignity and respect. Talk to us mm-hmm. about that, if you will.
4: Yeah, I so think I do that, think um, we're lacking. Yeah, I think that we just need to know that uh, you know when you're looking in somebody's eyes, you really uh, the, we, we think of ourselves as uh, individual and uh, but in, in truth, are really connected. And if you uh, show another person respect, you're also showing yourself respect. If you show another person kindness, you're showing another person kindness. If you harm another, you're really ultimately harming yourself in some way. So to recognize the connections and dissolve the illusion of separateness is um, very mm-hmm. par- much part of this spiral awakening uh, journey.
1: Right, right. Um, I want to talk about, because we're short on time here, and this is another thing that I think we're short on today, and that is laughter and play. mm um, you know if we just learn to laugh at ourselves a little more and not wait to be offended at every single little thing that happened <laughs> I think we'd be a lot happier
4: so d- well let me say one thing that might connect with reader with our uh, listeners here is that if you are uh, if you laugh that changes your biochemistry and actually um, if you uh, as opposed to having a uh, feeling defensive or uh, if somebody says something or taking something personally, when you take something's personally, it actually shortens what are what scientists now know and has been shown to be our uh, the uh, the uh, measure of aging in the body. So it's called a telomere. It's the end of our chromosomes, and uh, so I don't think anybody wants to get older just by being more cynical or defensive, and uh, and laughter is a wonderful antidote for that. You can't really laugh and be. Um, uh, defensive at the same time, right? Right, <laughs> right different states right. of mind, and I really, and I have one section in the book devoted to laughter, and uh, I think we, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in a very serious family, and so finding laughter and inviting it into my life has really been a wonderful uh, experience.
1: Mm. I grew up in a family that loved to laugh. Fortunately, um, uh,
4: that's <laughs> So, <great. laughs>
1: so uh, in that same chapter, very quickly, um, I just want to finish with this: no matter your age you have a child inside wanting to play because play is equally as important, right?
4: It's a, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that, get that?
1: Play is e- as equally oh, as important.
4: Yeah, so play, actually the word joy comes from the word rejoice, which is really how do you play? And to let that uh, inner child uh, loose and break the chains of, uh, sometimes the chains of adulthood and responsibility can weigh us down. And we need to learn how to play again, almost improv in your day. Right. Instead of having fixed responses. And if you can think of, of life a little more as an improv, um, you never really know what's going to happen. And that's that beautiful sense of uncertainty when you approach each moment fresh.
1: Right. Well, I love this book. I am uh, keeping this book next to my bedside, on my bedside table, along with some other no, favorites there. I'm so thank I, you. I thank you so much for being with us, Donald. We're right at the end of our segment here.
4: Well, thanks, Vicki. It was great.
1: And my guest, Donald Altman, you can find out much more about him and his work at MindfulPractices.com. And his new book is called Reflect, Awaken to the Wisdom of the Here and Now. And uh, we'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. You know where to get hold of me, 800-495-7617 and through our website at ConversationsLive.net. See you next week.
0: Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicky's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today